money owed on the one hand means money that you owe is your bill. Okay, you owe me so much. This is this is your bill. But the money which you use to pay the bill is also a bill. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we were talking last time about contronyms. These are words that contradict themselves in meaning. They have a self-contradictory element to them. And we pointed out they don't always contradict themselves entirely. Sometimes it's a stretch to say they're moving in two opposite directions, but they are moving in two surprisingly different directions often. And one of my favorite synonyms for contronym is uh, antagonym. <laughs> I don't think that one really caught on. Yeah. Actually, if you want to look at it on the web, you have to search for both of those because so, some of the pages call them antagonyms. Mm -hmm. Sure. And autoantonym. Mm -hmm. self-contradicting and also Janus words you pointed out for right. the Roman god Janus who looks backward and forward just like we do in January look back on the previous year and forward to the next year we have some more of these to work through uh, we talked about some that contradict their meaning due to American English versus British English and then we talked about words that have changed over time, changed, changed meaning from one to the other. But there are other categories to explore. Here's just sort of a peculiar one that's rather learned, and it's something that scholars run into, especially in the, in the humanities. Apology. Mm. Now, the, the Latin word apologia and the French word that was adapted from it uh, both refer to a written defense of one's opinions or conduct. So if you're trying to justify yourself or your position, you're issuing an apology in that sense. The main place it turns up in English, I think, is the title of John Henry Cardinal Newman's uh, 1864 defense of his religious opinions, titled Apologia Pro Vita Sua, Apology for His Life, uh, which means the opposite of what you might think. It's not... Uh, here's the terrible things I've done in my life, and I'm, I'm just apologizing for having been so bad. It's instead, uh, here's a defense of what I believe and stand for, and um, I'm sticking up for it. So it, one could see the two being uh, opposite, but really one of those pairs is almost exclusively in Latin, and so it's not really an, an English word. And of course, most of the time, the English spelling refers to an omission of error or misbehavior. And of course, today we, we already talked about the non-apology, which is kind of obvious. The uh, I'm so sorry if some people misunderstood what I had to say and were offended, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> which is a way of saying you're just a, a snowflake. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. too sensitive. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I didn't mean anything bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry that you suffered you're right. from what I said. <laughs> well, but it's not really my fault. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Another one that I discuss in the book is factoid, uh, which 
came to mean two opposite things. Um, it was invented. Actually, we know exactly when it was invented. 1973, Norman Mailer made it up to refer to uh, non-factual but widely believed notions. And it's very similar to Stephen Colbert's truthiness, which we talked about earlier. The suffix oid means similar to. And you have, for instance, uh, anthropoid as a scientific term, uh, meaning earlier beings which were like humans, anthros being man or humans. Uh, an asteroid, aster is Latin for star, and so an asteroid is bright, but it's, uh, it behaves differently from a star. So it's sort of a starry-like objects it's just an asteroid an android by the way is a sort of a artificial human being looks and sort of acts like a human being but not quite the same very familiar from science fiction but a lot of people were confused by this and they're not all that up on what oid means and it came to mean a diminutive so the small, trivial bits of fact were called factoids. You could see that with the asteroids. Asteroids are much smaller than stars, and they're little, little tiny things. Now, are you familiar with the columnist L.M. Boyd? Yes. Who wrote what was called in the down in the Bay Area, it was called the grab bag in, in the San Francisco Chronicle. Right. But his column was full of what he called factoids, right. little bits of trivia, little snippets of information. Uh, not always correct, not always accurate, but very popular column. And, you know, in my mind, uh, factoid and L.M. Boyd kind of got uh, <laughs> melded. Boydoid. Oh, yes, a boydoid. I think uh, his column might be the source of my understanding uh, of the uh, word factoid, meaning something, some small tidbit of trivial information. Well, I, I'm told, although I wasn't a regular viewer of cnn that they used to use it uh on the screen that would roll by little little factoids you know funny little note about something in today's news and they would call it a factoid I see. I see. and so I, I was just looking around to see how it's being used currently and it gets used both ways it has the original mailer meaning meaning this is some piece of nonsense is either a lie or a mistake but uh, people believe it anyway so it's uh, just a factoid or this is true, but it's it's kind of just trivial and interesting. And that's a factoid. I grew up so steeped in the world of the grab bag and L.M. Boyd and factoids meaning that. Um, I'll just give a little endorsement for your book. When I came across your work, that was the first time that I discovered that the, the actual origin of the word and the sort of true meaning, I guess you want to say, is this uh, fact that isn't really a fact. It's... It's like a fact, but it's not. A yeah, fact. we don't offend the linguist by calling it the true meaning. <laughs> the, the original <laughs> well, meaning. Yeah, the original meaning. And, and yes, it, of course. It's just the, of course. I think it's worth remembering that that oid um, means similar to. It's it's just a good thing to know as a rule of thumb when you encounter other words that have oid in their endings. And it's also worth knowing it does hold both meanings still. Yeah. If you come across it as somebody's trying to describe something that's not truly a fact and you see the word factoid to describe it, you realize that's not an error. That as actually is the original meaning of the word. And, yeah, I didn't mean to say the true meaning of the word, but, but uh, it just came out like that. Sorry. <laughs> There's a class of words which are used to mean their opposite just by out of uh, confusion that people are mistaken about the meaning of the word. And people will often say that inflammable 
means can't be burned and can be burned. And that's confusing because they often think that the in at the beginning of inflammable is a negative as in incapable, incapable of being burned. But that's not where it comes from. The in is more like the E at the beginning of inflame to set something on fire. So inflammable means able to be inflamed. And it means the same thing as flammable. So that's what people get confused because inflammable and flammable both mean the same thing. Uh, but a lot of people misuse the word inflammable to mean non-flammable, mostly just when they're criticizing the word. It's worth knowing that the meaning can be misconstrued so violently <laughs> because this is a pretty important one, right? right. You don't want to say that something is... Uh, uh, Fireproof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, in fact, it, you're trying to say that it's highly flammable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Another one that is endlessly discussed and a very hot topic these days is literally. Oh, yeah. So literally, we hit a bump in the road would mean you were driving down the road and there was a bump and you hit the bump in the road. But if you were trying to plan your vacation and it turned out that the airline that had booked your flight just went bankrupt, that could be a bump in the road. Um as a figurative meaning, but people don't use the word figurative very much anymore. And they've taken to using the word literally where they really mean figurative. So the example I gave in the book was don't say he literally blew up unless he swallowed a stick of dynamite. But that's probably a lost cause. I mean, it's very rare that people use the word literally of anything that's literal. Well, yes, and uh, even people complaining about it can say, oh, that literally drives me crazy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, hmm, I don't think so. <laughs> but it it does make people bristle, and it's worth knowing that uh, a certain number of people will bristle yes. and grind their teeth and uh, yeah. you know, think that you're pretty being pretty annoying if you overuse that word literally. In that for way. me, this is a test case for the, the criticism of linguists who say, okay, the word has just changed its meaning. Get over it. Stop criticizing it. Not for everybody. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's very likely to annoy teachers and editors and potential dating partners, um, not to mention uh, your friends on Facebook. So it's a good idea to stop and think before you use literally. Uh, am I really literally doing this? There's not really many occasions for the use of the word literally, unless there's something that's usually a figure of speech, but you're pointing out in this case, it actually happened. There really was a bump in the road. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not, uh, it's not going to work against you 100%, but I would argue that if you overuse that word and it, you call attention to the way you're using the word sort of incorrectly or could be perceived as incorrectly over and over and over again, that is when I think you'll, you'll really turn a switch on people. It's just become so, a general intensifier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Here, here we have two cases here already, um, or, or actually three cases or uh, we're seeing usage guides being very useful here because uh, we're pointing out the word factoid is uh, has has two meanings that are still current and you ought to know what they are. Uh, inflammable having its two meanings and literally being the one that can sh you can where you can shut people down if you use it or you use it too much to in in the wrong sense. Um, 
We still need usage guides for, for these things. Yeah, it, it makes uh, people mad, but uh, it won't. It's not literally inflammable. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, comprise. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> comprise and composed right. of. This is one oh. that is so subtle that lots of people get it confused. So I have to look it up. <laughs> use it oh, and think yes. about it and I discussed it uh, in an earlier podcast um, and here's what I had to say about it in the book because uh, I feel safe for having this down in print there's a lot of disagreement about the proper use of comprise but most authorities agree that the whole comprises the parts our pets comprise one dog two cats and a turtle the whole comes first then comprise followed by the parts but there's so much confusion surrounding the usage of this word that it may be better to avoid it altogether. Yeah. Now, we had this discussion before, and I know that I started to misspeak in the middle of it, which is I was just proving once again that it's best avoided. But I think the example I was using was the Beatles comprise John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, that's that's not one that would you. you usually say you know i think there's a perfectly good expression is made up of that yeah. can be used instead and i'd skip the comprise right but the thing is i could say the beatles are composed of john paul george mm -hmm. and rinko um and that's where i think people make the slip is they'll say the beatles are comprised of john paul yeah george there's also that's oh. that's where that's where you see a lot of the so-called mistake right that, you could also make the argument that it should be the beatles is composed of since the beatles was the name of a <laughs> yes group. yes you're right you're right the beatles is composed of john paul George. Uh, yes all right yeah i shouldn't i shouldn't have done it that way it is comp yes so anyway forget about comprised okay is it's just a pain <laughs> yeah it's just a bothersome word that we have. And somebody, um, I think we discussed this before, somebody is going through Wikipedia and uniformly correcting this error. Oh, really? <laughs> He's written a script, meaning a, a, a little computer program that will go search all through Wikipedia and uh, replace uh, misuse of the word comprise. Well, okay. <laughs> thank you for your hard work. Now, the, another one that... Um physicists feel strongly about and i do too having a real interest in nuclear physics but which other people outside the field generally don't care about and that's a quantum leap in quantum mechanics a change of a particle from one state to another is measured by the quantum and the quantum is one of the smallest things that you can measure in the world but it's distinct People are using it now to mean a huge transformation. Uh, we used to be in the pre-internet age, and now there's been a quantum leap in our interconnectivity and the way we conduct our lives and so on. And it's, the scale is so incongruous for people that are used to uh, thinking about this in physics terms. However, there's a certain justification for it in that physics, it means that it jumps from one state absolutely to another state without any transition in between. So it's hugeness in the sense that it's completely different, but it's not super, super large. So I guess it bothers me most when people really aren't talking about an abrupt transition where there's really just one day it's black and the next day it's white, um, but they're just talking about 
ordinary changes, which nevertheless are rather charged to me. If it's gone through a transition, then it's really a huge change. It doesn't make any sense to talk about a quantum leap. Well, uh, some of these contronyms, we could say, are making a quantum leap within themselves, right? I mean, they point one direction and they point the opposite direction <laughs> the next second. That, that might be more in lines with that thinking. Another scientific one is the eye of the storm, which is used metaphorically all the time. Um, it's used in a poetic sense a lot. It's been around for a long time. And uh, this means right at the center of the storm where it's really blowing like crazy. As we're recording this, I think you're approaching the eye of a storm down there in <laughs> yeah. Portland, which is about to come up here to Seattle. And I hope not knock our computers off. <laughs> but it's used technically by meteorologists to mean the spot in the middle of a hurricane where it's completely still. Yes, so the eye of the hurricane, everything is very calm there. There's nothing much going on at all. And it's that moment of pause between having passed through one side of the hurricane with terrific winds than a calm spot in the eye and then more winds on the other side. So uh, usually people think that it means the, the windiest, stormiest part of the storm. I would be interested to know, I haven't really researched this, whether eye of the storm was used in that sense before meteorologists got hold of it. Not all storms are circular, of course. But the metaphor of an eye seems to suggest a circular storm, a round hole that looks like an eye. So um, I'm willing to defer to the meteorologists. Yeah, and you pointed out that the way it's used commonly, not meteorologically, might be better to say it's the heart of the storm. Right. And that would be something that I don't think anybody would get confused about. Now, a related one is epicenter, and this one's not exactly opposite. And I talk about this in the book, too. Technically, it's the area above the hypocenter. The hypocenter is where the action is really taking place at, at the greatest amount. That is, the, the crust is shifting, and it's causing disturbances at the surface. So what happens at the surface is what we as humans experience as the earthquake. But geologists are interested in what's happening down deep as well and because that's where the cause comes and so they think that the very center of an earthquake actually could be a mile underground epi is a prefix that can be uh, extra outside of uh, attached to extraneous almost um, so that's the way it's being used here but then we have the word epitome and that means the very essence of something. And I think that's helped to influence the use of epicenter for people to think that the very heart of the disturbance is the epicenter. And that's the way it's normally used. I would say that is its meaning in journalism. And it's not just about earthquakes, of course, but the epicenter of a dispute over something or a conflict of some kind is called its epicenter. And I guess that's legitimate in the sense that, after all, that's where the action goes on that affects people up on the surface. Yeah, all of these scientific ones are a little tricky because they get used commonly. Uh, if you want to be practicing good scientific mind, you, you, you need to know both meanings, but a lot of people don't and are not. If you're a scientist, you just kind of have to live with the 
way epicenter gets used. Yeah, and I think what bothers them the most is that when they want to discuss earthquakes, um, mm. people don't know what epicenter means because they've had this popular use in mind. So they're uh, not understanding what the geologists are trying to tell them. Yeah. Now, one of the causes of shift in meaning has to do with certain professions hanging on to terms after they've fallen out of general usage. And the legal profession is infamous for this. And uh, in that case, the word bill is an interesting one. A bill has a host of meanings. It's just a terrifically widespread word. But it started as a kind of weapon, a sort of sword, actually. And uh, there were also spears, I think, that were called bills. But it did come to mean a written document. And it's still used in legal language. Of course, uh, we have bills that are turned into laws. But it occurs in the U.S. Constitution in a clause that prohibits bills of attainder, a term that's really antique. But that was a legislative act declaring someone guilty and punishing them without trial. And that still happens in dictatorships a lot, where the, the uh, dictator will just tell his pet assembly, uh, you know, my foe is a traitor to his country, and uh, you should find him guilty of treason and, and have him executed. And no trial, just make a, make a law to that effect. So you're not supposed to do bills of attainder if you're in the government in the United States. Now, later on, this idea of a, a written document uh, came to mean any circulating bit of writing on paper it didn't have to be a serious legal document. It it could be uh, a satire somebody had written and posted up in the streets, and, and uh, it could be a note of a forthcoming attraction you might stick up on a billboard. And of course, billboards came to mean just one big piece of paper or, well, often made up of smaller ones, but one big advertisement on a board. But originally, a billboard had many bills on it. Uh, we now call those bulletin boards. Mm. And in fact, bull and bill are related, and papal bulls were originally called bills. So to present somebody a petition uh, was to give them a bill. And so you're saying, um, I want my rights to go across your property to get to the beach, and, and I'm submitting this legal document requesting that, so I'm submitting a bill to you. So a subset of that is a bill that's asking for a kind of payment. So I uh, dug the ditch for you yesterday, and here's my bill. It's a statement saying you owe me money. In finance, it originally referred to a written documents specifying that the writer would pay a certain sum on a given date to the payee. So a bill would say $25 due on the 26th of the month, to be paid to Sam Jones. But those were called uh, bills of exchange. And they came to be used as money. And in uh, like the 17th, 18th century, you'll see references to people traveling around Europe with such bills. And so somebody back home in England would have said, okay, I'm going to pay you uh, 50 pounds. And, and when you submit this bill to me, and that would be, you would get cash from them. But if you were traveling in France, you could turn that into money by saying, okay, I'm going to sign this over and then you would be the person who receives it now you get to collect that money and they they traveled around from place to place. a whole system arose making these into these bills of exchange and they evolves gradually into what are now called banknotes or bills dollar bills uh, money owed on the one hand means money that you owe is your bill okay you owe me so much this is this is your bill but the money which you use to pay the bill is also a bill dollar bills 
So you can pay your bills with bills. <laughs> well, that's the long route to get to that contronym. But it's so funny because you always know which end you're on <laughs> with that one. Uh, right. You eat dinner at the restaurant and they bring you the bill. Uh, you know they're not bringing you money. Right. <laughs> so it it is odd that the word means those two diametrically opposed things, but it's also odd that we never really seem to get it confused either. Right, and you can, nobody's confused that you leave a $10 bill for a tip. Yeah. Another one that turns up in all the lists is bolt. And this is a case where they're really different words. Uh, bolt can be a noun or a verb. Uh, the bolt is that device you use to secure a door, but it can also be a verb that you, you use that device to, to secure the door is to bolt it, to lock it securely. But to bolt could also mean to dash away suddenly, to, to escape, to get, get away. Uh, so uh, here's a, a use of both meanings. Here comes the bill collector, bolt the front door and bolt out the back. Now, a bolt was originally a kind of arrow a weapon shot from a bow and it would have a blunt ending on it and the suddenness with which it could be shot it was what got associated mainly with bolts so you thought of it you know swift as an arrow but this bolts were thought of as being really fast and you get words like thunderbolt and so if you bolt you're off like a shot mm-hmm. so you know, making something secure and running away not exactly precisely opposite but uh, certainly in conflict with each other yeah yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, a bound. Okay, bound has a lots, lots of meanings, but it uh, originally was a marker of the boundary of a property, and it can also mean tied up, you're bound. Um, it also has that meaning bound and determined, which uh, doesn't really come in here, but both of them actually mean enclose or confine. So you're, the bound of the property is confining it and tied up is finding it. But we also have the meaning bounding away, escaping it with bounds across the landscape, uh, perhaps on a ship, on the bounding main. The ships are doing the bounding, leaping about. So it can mean tied up and immobile on the one hand, and it can mean just running and jumping and bounding around like a kangaroo. The two meanings actually originate from two quite distinct French roots that were spelled differently, and the two spellings merged in English with the two opposite meanings, and we got stuck with them ever since. And again, I don't think those cause any problems because the context usually makes it quite clear that if you're bound to a contract versus uh, bounding around the landscape on a pogo stick. There's, nobody's going to be confused with which one you mean. Right, yeah. Well, you know, we, we have a lot more to discuss, Paul. Some of my favorites are, are still coming up. We have cleave and refrain and overlook and oversight. All of these great contronyms that we still need to discuss, but I think we need to leave it for another time. Right. <laughs> Wrap this up for now. But this is a great list, and I want to come back to it. So let's let's maybe hit up some more of these next time. Okay. All right. Thank you, Paul. So long time. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller. 
at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.